1: On today's show, we are going to do another species of waterfowl, and today is the most popular duck in North America, uh, probably the most populous duck in North America, the mallard. Joining me today is Dr. Mike Brazier, my co-host. Mike, how are you? I'm doing well. Chris, how are you doing today? Awesome. I am ready to talk about the mallard. So, you know, just everyone is so familiar with the mallard. So, you know, when we first started talking about doing these shows, it's one of those deals where I'm like, man, I just don't know if we can, you know, talk about just the mallard. For forty-five minutes or so, but yeah, I don't know. If
2: there's anything to say
1: about it. Yeah, right. But I, then you walk in with a stack full of notes, and so this is going to be great. So, Mike, go ahead and give us a quick introduction to the mallard. Uh, just kind of a, a real brief intro about the species, and then we'll get into the weeds.
2: It is, as you say, the most populous duck in North America. Actually, the most populous duck in the world. It is a Northern Hemisphere species, at least originally. Uh, and one thing that we'll—I'll just say here—we're not going to get into all the, the taxonomic. Relatedness, phylogenetic relatedness of this species. We actually had Dr. Phil Lavretsky on an earlier episode talking extensively about this, and this is, this is kind of his area of expertise. So kind of go back to some of those episodes if you want to learn about the phylogen- phylogeny of, of the mallard. But it is uh, historically a North, northern hemisphere species occurred uh, across the northern hemisphere in North America and Europe. But then, of course, through a variety of introductions, they're now pretty much found on every continent except Antarctica, Uh, across the globe. So, uh, yeah, we can get into harvest statistics and where it ranks and all that kind of stuff, but pretty much anything that we're going to say about the mallard is that it's going to rank at the top in terms of how intensively it's studied. Uh, It as the basis for much of what we know about waterfowl ecology and um, habitat relationships. It's just, it has been the star, you might say, if we want to anthropomorphize here a little bit, uh, throughout the waterfowl world and waterfowl literature for many, many decades and continues to be one of the most popular uh, and well-studied duck species, bird species, quite frankly, all across the world.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it's it's so common that, you know, things that, we do every day even like emojis for iPhone you know if you put type duck in there it actually generates a picture of a mallard so for any of our listeners out there who are not aware of what that mallard looks like uh, you know just a just an FYI it's that green headed duck and I know you mentioned you didn't want to get real in-depth with this, but I'm going to let you kind of share a little bit about the taxonomy.
2: Yeah, and, and this kind of goes to this, this well-studied group of birds, kind of called the uh, mallard complex, the mallard clade. And and yeah, I'm not going to get too deep into it because quite frankly, I am not a taxonomic expert. That's where our good friend, Phil comes in, uh comes in handy, but... Here within North America, we can certainly touch on the most uh, the most obvious ones. i you know, mallard. You know that's the that's where we start. And uh, American black duck, uh, close relative to that. Model duck, also close relative. Mexican duck. It was recently recognized as a unique species by the American mm-hmm. Ornithological Society. And then if you go over to the Hawaiian <coughs> Hawaiian Islands, we have uh, the Hawaiian duck and the, the Laysan teal that are in that Mallard complex. And then you kind of get overseas and pick up a few others, uh, four or five others, depending on how you want to look at the taxonomy. But I'll stay away from that for right now. We'll just kind of stick to the those in North America and over in Hawaii.
1: Yeah, and we can get Phil back on at some point to, to maybe, you know, get even more in depth than we sure. already have with the shows yep. that you did a couple seasons back. Um, you know, and, and one thing that you mentioned is it is worldwide. I mean, the Mallard is... Um, you know, distribution-wise, it's pretty much everywhere. And so, you know, let's talk about their distribution and how it's specific to North America. When we
2: talk about the distribution of this bird in North America, I think the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that people are going to see many, many mallards in urban settings. Um and there's a variety of reasons why that that is the case. I mean, they're just fundamentally very well adapted to some of those urban environments. They've just exhibit tremendous flexibility in their their diet, their habitat needs, their nesting needs. They can nest anywhere. You can find them anywhere. So, a lot of the people that see ducks in urban environments are going to be looking at, at mallards. And so, just kind of keep that in mind. We'll set those urban environments aside right mm-hmm. now, just to, accepting that you're going to see a lot of mallards in urban environments. Um, <clears throat> when we look across North America to their primary breeding habitats within, let's say, just the free-ranging um the, the uh, more natural settings, uh, the heart of their breeding range is going to be the prairie pothole region of the U.S. and Canada. But of course, they breed all across the northern U.S. and all across Canada into the boreal forest. About um, the only place you won't find them is on the, the tundra. They do, uh, they do nest in, 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 uh, on the coastal plain mm-hmm. in Alaska. They will, There's sizable populations of mallards, breeding mallards in California. Oregon, Washington, Interior British Columbia, of course, the Great Lake states, all across the um, the northeastern U.S., uh, and then and then into eastern Canada as well. They are widely distributed across uh, across the northern tier of North America.
1: And I'm sure that that's the reason for their being their abundance too. Is they're you know really prolific and opportunistic is probably the better word. You know they'll take advantage of any type of habitat, you know, for, for... Now, granted, they have, like you said, they have their preferred in the PPR, the Prairie Pothole region. Um, but we just had Fritz Reed on not too long ago, and he was talking about, you know, the large percentage of mallards that are actually um, raised in the boreal. Yeah. You know, and that's one thing that I think, you know, maybe our audience overlooks sometimes that, you know, those there's a ton of mallards coming from up there, up further north.
2: Yeah. Depending on the year, uh, like it, during a, a dry year, such as this 2021, uh, the, if we were to look at the total estimated mallard breeding population kind of in the east, in the western U.S. and Canada, about 70%, I would say somewhere between 60 and 80% of that mallard breeding population is going to be in the prairie pothole region of the U.S. and Canada. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe more like 60 or 70, 80 might be a little bit high whenever you factor in the breeding populations in California, Oregon, um, in Washington. But yeah, so that's, it's the heart of their breeding range. And that is why it's one of the reasons why it is so important for, um, for all of our conservation efforts.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, we, you, you kind of flirted with this, uh, you know, the breeding, uh, breeding range here. Um, let's, let's get a little bit more into kind of the ecology of it because some people, even like you mentioned, people will see you know, or these urban ducks are probably what some people see most, more than anything. Um, but we always get a ton of questions about those. Just, hey, you know, how long are they sitting on the nest? How many eggs are there supposed to be? Um, so, let's kind of get into that. Like, just their actual, like, the functioning of their nest, how the process works. Um, before we get in the actual nest, you know, let's even talk about, and now you did your PhD research. That would be, that would be my master's. Master's, yep. okay. You did that one. Mallard breeding ecology. Did you not? I did uh, specifically male mallard yep, breeding that's ecology. Right. Yeah. So, so what are the, what exactly? How, where? How does this process start and and kind of let's go through that process through the whole breeding cycle.
2: Well, so let's back up to fall. That's when things really start gearing up in anticipation of breeding the the subsequent spring. Mallards, in contrast to other species that we've talked about, like blue winged teal, mallards are a species that will that will pair fairly early. They will. They are seasonally monogamous as we refer to them, which means they form new pair bonds each year. But once they have formed those pair bonds, the male and female will remain intact or will remain together uh, until the, the female is far along in incubation or otherwise one of the pair members uh, dies for whatever reason. So, seasonally monogamous, those pair bonds begin to develop in the fall. Uh, somewhere by November, let's say by December, we're probably looking at about 70, 80 to 80 percent of the mallards being, mallard females being paired. Uh, mallards, like most species of ducks in North America, exhibit a male-biased sex ratio, more males than females in the population, which means that there are going to be some males that will not find a mate, but uh, yeah they they form their pair bonds in the winter and then once they travel back north to breed in the prairies or the boreal forest or wherever it may be they will uh, the hen will find a suitable nest site in some typically in some type of upland area they are upland nesting ducks like most dabbling ducks in north america however mallards being very flexible in their um, nest site selection they will they will nest over water. They can kind of construct a little platform actually over water out of grasses or emergent vegetation and build a nest. In um, in those situations, they also nest frequently in um, human provided, human constructed structures. Nest tunnels would be the most um, common type of, of nesting structure that people would would find a mallard um, a hen mallard nesting in, and they are they just nest in pretty much every place that you could imagine. Whenever you look at some of the nesting studies across the years and they identify preferred nest site or, or primary nest site selection or uh, however they characterize it, a lot of times they will find mallards most often in odd areas. Mm-hmm. They kind of describe them as odd yeah. areas, shrubby areas, <laughs> long fence line. Flower Oh, uh, There's been some of that too. We found some in the... Um, in the crooks or crevices of trees, you know, yeah. they're just, they're, they will nest pretty much anywhere they find a site that they deem suitable. Uh, that is quite frankly to their advantage, advantage and that's in stark contrast to other species like, uh, like pintails, which are almost nest site specialists. And of course there's a story behind with pintails about how that is sort of uh, one of the things that's causing their population, you know, troubles but uh, but yeah, mallards are readily adaptable in terms of their nest site selection. And so, the, uh, the hen establishes a, a nest, creates a nest bowl, and on average, she will lay about nine eggs. Uh, that contrast with uh, another species we've talked about, again, blue-winged teal, sort of at the other end of one of these spectrums. So mallards are about, you know, are a larger duck, about two and a half to three pounds. And, um, and yeah, they will average clutch size for first nest is about nine eggs. Now the other thing about the nesting ecology of mallards is they are the most prolific renester, mm-hmm. which means the renesting is basically the process by which after one nest is destroyed, the hen will initiate a entirely new nest. There's sometimes anywhere from, well, the the time between nest varies and it depends on a number of things. The stage at which the nest is destroyed, whether it's early in laying, if a nest is destroyed when the female is just in the laying process, a lot of times she will just pick up the very next day and start a new nest or sometimes you'll wait a day or two but once they get farther into incubation and if the nest is destroyed it may take a week or 10 days before they um, gear back up for for nesting but anyway mallards are one of the most prolific renesting species they will they can nest up to renest up to five times during years when there's abundant wetlands when you know conditions are good now in, in drought years such as 2021 it provides us an opportunity to talk about this and how it how it affects their ecology, they're not going to renest as often simply because they're going to assess the habitat conditions and in a drought landscape, they're going to be able to sense a and detect a shortage of wetlands and whatever kind of calculus goes on in, <laughs> in the mind of a duck to make those decisions, it happens and they will curtail their renesting quite a bit during the years uh, when there are um, when there are fewer wetlands. So, yeah, that kind of gets us to the, uh, to the clutch, average clutch size of nine. With each of those re the average clutch size decreases. And, uh, and, and that, that rule, that's a general rule anyway. The later in the breeding season that a nest is initiated, the smaller the clutch size will be. Um, average length of incubation for a mallard is somewhere around 26, 28 days. What time of year are they typically getting up there to start this process? Yeah, good question. They, well, what I can tell you is whenever I was working on my master's research, we would arrive in, uh, I would leave from Mississippi and we would arrive in Manitoba or Saskatchewan in late March. Okay. So we would have to be there on site, basically before the ducks arrive. Sometimes they would start arriving in very late March, um, but most often mallards are going to be uh, some of the first to arrive. Mallards and pintails will be among the first to venture back north. They want to get an early start on breeding, and they will, uh, yeah, typically get there in um, the in noticeable numbers in the first. First week or so of April, and then they will start nesting in mid-April um, if
1: conditions are right. Yeah, and that you know, I want to. I, I kind of wanted to just go back real quick before we we move on into clutch size, because I'm sure we're going to get pretty detailed on this. But you talked about you know the the initial um, stages of that breeding process, of that full breeding cycle. That's something that hunters, uh, your average hunter out there is witnessing throughout the season. It's something that we point out a lot when we talk about kind of tips and tactics deals, because you see these, you know, large flocks of mallards early, middle of the season. Um, and then later in the season, as you get into late December, especially down here, you know, in the Mid-South area um, and the South, you, you start seeing pairs. You know, you're not seeing a flock of 20 or a flock of eight. You're seeing a, a drake and a hen. And that's the part of this process that most hunters have probably witnessed, no matter where they're hunting, you know, they, they've probably seen that. So I just wanted to kind of point that out uh, before we move on to actual clutch size and things like that. Uh, so so what are these things doing the day they pop out? Uh, the day they hop out of the egg, you know, you've got, what, nine, possibly 10? Yeah,
2: nine or on average nine, sometimes 10, sometimes eight uh, eggs. Mm -hmm. uh, That would be the terminal clutch size. And, you know, hatchability, one of the questions that that researchers have, I mean, researchers have have answered or asked questions and collected data to answer pretty much any type of question you can imagine. One of the questions is like hatchability. What percentage of the eggs in a nest will actually hatch or fertile? That that percentage is pretty high. It's just kind of a a little tidbit, probably over 90, 95% are going to be fertile, you know, so high hatchability is very rare that you, it may even be higher than 95%, but it's very rare that you find nests that go unhatched in, um, in most of your dabbling and diving ducks, wood ducks, um, and other, black belly or whistling ducks and other cavity nesting species may be a little bit different, especially when you have a situation where that nest is being parasitized and you have multiple females nesting in a, in a box. You know, you can get massive uh, clutch sizes, 20 and 30. Those are pretty rare Those though. type, Yeah, yeah they're, they're rare, but well, it's not uncommon at all for, for those cavity nesting species to have more than, you know, 10 or so eggs. And in some cases, that's when you might find... Uh, a number of eggs that go unhatched. But when we're talking about ground nesting ducks, overwater nests, or dabbling and diving ducks that nest in uplands or nest over water, where their nests are harder to find as a general rule and that parasitism is lower with the exception of canvasbacks and redheads, there's going to be all sorts of exceptions <laughs> as we go through this conversation. Yeah. Um, there are going to be very few instances where the eggs do not hatch. So you're going to have nine or 10 ducklings or, or fewer if it's later in the season that will hatch. And, and again, all ducks are, uh, all uh, species of waterfowl are precocial, mm-hmm. meaning that those young ducks, geese, or swan are able to, they have down all across their bodies. Unlike the altricial, young from passerine birds or or other um, or most of the other birds that we're kind of familiar with where they when they hatch they are they're naked you know they mm-hmm. they do not have feathers that's, that's <clears throat> in contrast to the precocial birds which do have which are down covered they are fully mobile their eyes are open and they are able to forage and move independently without the aid of the parent so upon hatching those little fuzzballs make their way to uh, to a wetland and, uh, you know, they are kind of guided or taken there by the hen and
1: they, they They're on trying their way eat, trying yeah. to catch bugs. Yeah, and, you know, and that's, that's the difficult part of, you know, this whole process is those little ducklings are very, very vulnerable to just about everything out there. But one thing that I had heard someone talk about not too long ago was how vulnerable, and it might have been you, uh, but I don't want to give you credit right now. Um, the How vulnerable are those ducks the days that they, you know, the day that they come out of the egg? Um, they're very vulnerable to moisture and, and weather. Like yeah, if it gets really, sure. really cold in yep. the spring— um, they could that can kill the whole clutch i mean it can
2: yes the, the, once they hatch the yeah, brood yeah so we go from a from a yeah, clutch sorry, to a clutch yeah, of brood. eggs to a brood That's of ducklings right. or yeah. goslings and yes during those those first few days and i forget exactly how many days i want to say what they you know they have the ability to thermoregulate to some small degree Pretty quick, maybe within a day or two, but, but then it's not until they're maybe a week or so old, that may be a little bit generous. They may get there around four or five days where they develop a greater sense of thermal regulation and they're able to kind of, um, uh, they are a bit more resilient to those kind of adverse weather conditions. But during those first few days, absolutely, the hen has to brood them, basically meaning that, that at night or in otherwise inclement weather conditions, whether it be a snowstorm or rain, uh, they will huddle under her. Mm-hmm. They'll find a place, a log or, or a dry area up in the vegetation and, and try to stay out of the eyesight and detection of predators, and she will protect them from those elements by getting them to kind of stuff up underneath her feathers and under her wings and pretty neat little deal. So, yes, yeah, she does brood them for the, those first few days. Um, but then once they once they get to about a week or so of, of age, they, they can do a, a bit better job independently of thermoregulating. Um, but absolutely, exposure is a common source of mortality for uh, for ducklings
1: and and as we just kind of go through this process we're actually going to you know follow right along with our little plan here but it's just we're actually just following along with the 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 life cycle of a mallard which is cool um how many days does it take for the or months i guess does it take for them to be able to fly so,
2: for mallards, uh, from the time they hatch, it's going to require somewhere between 40 to 60 days for them to, to you know, to be fully feathered and, and able to fly. Actually, they can typically, sometimes they can fly a little bit sooner than that, but uh, but yeah, about 50 days, I, I'd say is probably a, a good average uh, time to fledging after uh, after they hatch.
1: And how long do they stay with the hen, with the mother, I guess? Um, as they get older and grow and right before they're kind of preparing for migration, you know, by by this time in the life cycle, you know, their their job is to prepare for migration uh, and survive, obviously. Uh, But so, how long do they stay with their mother?
2: They will. uh, It's not uncommon. I'm thinking back to whenever I was on uh, up there in Canada doing some Doing some of my research, it's not uncommon to find ducklings that you would think are able to fly that still have the the hen around. So, mm-hmm. she'll. Uh, I suspect there's some variation around that. This is a pretty specific question that I'll confess I don't know exactly. You know what what controls the length of time that a hen is going to stay with those ducklings? Um, but once they, it wouldn't be uncommon to find a hen with ducklings that are right near uh, flight capability. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also wouldn't be uncommon for a hen to kind of bugger off, you know, two weeks prior to that. Yeah. So, there's, th- she will, the point is, she's going to stay with them for quite a while.
1: What are these ducklings eating when they finally do get to a wetland? Uh, what are they keying in on to to grow? No, so it's going to
2: be invertebrates of all, all different kind, whether they be aquatic invertebrates or little flies and midges that are emerging from the wetland and perching on the, um, on vegetation. You've, Pretty much all of us have seen photos or videos of a little duckling jumping up out of the water, mm-hmm. trying to grasp a, a fly that's um, that's traveling overhead or that's perched on a on a piece of vegetation. But yeah, it's it's pretty much all um, uh, uh, invertebrates of various types there, where they're trying to get those protein resources to help them grow their muscle, their feathers, and then all the other all the other tissue that they need to grow and grow grow quickly.
1: Yeah and the, and that's when the like I mentioned the kind of the pressure's on. Yeah. Um so we'll kind of transition into that. You know, they're trying to put on weight preparing for the migration. This is not necessarily focused specifically on the ducklings in general but just the mallard. What are they doing as they're preparing? This would be like, I would say, maybe late summer, early fall. They're kind of preparing for that migration. Um, what's their focus at that time?
2: Yeah, so I'll come at this from uh, several different angles. We'll talk about the different uh, the, the different sexes. So first, we'll, let's talk about the male mallards a little bit because we haven't spoken much about them. Um, <clears throat> you know, once we get there to the breeding grounds, like most... Uh, so I, I said earlier that they're seasonally monogamous, uh, the female in in ducks in in North America we have what's known as female um, biased parental care care pretty much the female is the only sex that cares for ducklings um, in in ducks here and so basically what that means is that the male's responsibility um, for any kind of uh, any kind of care of the ducklings I mean it's non-existent but any their their parental, care responsibilities begins to wane as the female progresses into incubation. And so, what what my study actually did was I had radio-marked males as well as the radio-marked female pair, and so I, I knew if the hen was nesting and then I was tracking the male and actually collecting visual observations of that male, and so one of the questions that we were answering, trying to answer, is this very one of what are the, at what point do the males depart the breeding ground either leave the female and go seek other breeding opportunities or completely leave the the breeding um, site the breeding region and go um, go ahead and start molting
1: yeah I just want to point out that you know, most of the world just looks at ducks and but Dr. Mike Brazier collects visual observations. Well, that's right. That's all we did. <laughs> Collect visual observations. I was just looking. You know, I'd look at them. No. We no. observe and yes, that's right. That's perfect. No, that was that was cool. And but you know, in your your studies there, were you learning that maybe that male hung out a little longer than you originally thought? We did. Uh, our our study was
2: That was probably one of the takeaways that a lot of times now I read species accounts of the mallard and they will, uh, a lot of times you'll find where they describe them, the the male departing or that pair bond loosening once the female gets to incubation, one or two days of incubation. What I actually found is that that male, in most cases, the the male mate stuck around um, in proximity to where that hen was nesting. Well into incubation, two to sometimes two and a half, three weeks into incubation, which is a bit unusual or at least unexpected relative to what we uh, had, had been previously found. And so, I don't exactly know. If there was something driving that, maybe it was an exceptionally wet year. They had good wetland conditions, and the male was kind of gauging whether he thought there was going to be additional re-nest opportunities. So yeah. Again, what goes on, the calculus that goes on in the mind of these ducks is a bit uncertain. But uh, we did find the males hanging around and being available for those re-nest opportunities in pretty much every case. In any of the, at least for the males, the the pairs for which we had that male mate radio marked. I think there may be only one or two instances where we observed the female um, pairing or or mating with a male other than her original mate for a subsequent re-nest opportunity, if that makes sense. In every case of those re opportunities, it was the original male mate that she was with is basically what what we found, which was pretty cool to see that. Um, so, nevertheless, though, once they get about two to three weeks of incubation, that male starts ranging a bit more widely across, in, in our case, the study area. And, and by widely, I'm talking five to 10 miles. Sometimes we'd have yeah. to go to search for them. But then once she gets even farther into incubation, and, and certainly once she hatches, the, her clutch of eggs, the male is buggering off doing other things. And pretty soon, a lot of those males depart the breeding area uh, and will end up traveling to some more permanent molting lakes where mm-hmm. they will drop their flight feathers and go through the molt. And uh, yeah, so that's what, th- what the males do. And then females, they, if they're successful raising, um, if they're successful hatching a clutch, they, of course, do... Uh, transition into brood care, and they was not uncommon for females. We think to actually molt their wing feathers um, at on the breeding grounds where they have been raising that brood. Now, if if they nest early enough and or if their nest is destroyed or repeated nest or destro- destroyed then they will eventually kind of give up and go on to some of these molting lakes yeah. but it's not uncommon at all we don't think for some of those females to be dropping their flight feathers and molting there in proximity to you know the area where they actually nested so that's all going to be happening in late summer and then they mallards and some of the other duck species that don't migrate as early as blue-winged teal they will transition to this this sort of staging period, as we refer to it, where they are um, kind of hanging out, getting fat, replacing their their flight feathers, and preparing for that southward migration whenever they feel the urge to do so. And are so. the,
1: you know, is mallard one of those species where the young of the year quickly become, you know, that within that same year, you know, are is a hen mallard going to be expected to raise... A brood and nest that same year or is it one of those species where it took two years old it'll do it yeah all dabbling ducks uh will
2: nest or and are capable of of breeding in their first year first year, okay. first year of life but yeah. and that basically means the following spring yeah. it's like we're not talking about them attaining flight and then being able to breed within you know no. three months yeah of, yeah of I, ju- I just hatched. was so not yeah, the sure. following spring right they do breed at one year of age um Mallards, blue wings, shovelers, pintails, black ducks—all those species are, are, are that way. And in most of the diving ducks, there's, there are most of the diving ducks are going to be the same way.
1: And then, you know, let's let's talk about migration. We're talking about we got all the way up to staging, and I think that's kind of the quintessential mallard image in people's heads would be you know these large flocks of migrating mallards or mallards in the snow, you know, something like that, where because they're they're actually a really hardy bird.
2: Mm. Well, apparently, mallards don't migrate anymore, according to social media.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think that, that that's, you know, not that specifically. But I think one thing that makes the mallard so exceptional is the fact that it can handle some pretty cold temperatures. It can handle, you know, a little bit of snow and a, and a little bit of ice. And before they, you know, they're hardy enough that they really try and stick it out. Um, and so in that process, how, how much are they having to pack on in that staging area to make sure that they can make the flight? Cause some of these birds are wintering, you know, as far South as Louisiana, you know, Arkansas, you know, these are, you know, Texas, California, Southern California. I mean, that's, um, out West, but, um, you know, w- what are they doing to pack on this much weight? What kind of foods are they eating? How are they, how are they approaching that, uh, th- that next stage in their life? You're starting to touch on a couple of a couple of really intriguing
2: questions and that relate to um, to things that we observe with regard to mallard migration there's there are it, it's almost as though there there are some mallards as you described there will be mallards that will be in Louisiana that will have already migrated to Louisiana by, by by late October maybe even earlier in some years in early, early November and meanwhile there are still mallards left in this, hanging out in North Dakota which mallards are those you know' the ones that migrate early um, regardless of what weather conditions are and how cold it gets, how early it gets it gets cold uh, versus those that really hang out at northern latitudes despite uh, severe winter weather what causes those differences we really don't know and it's actually a pretty intriguing question that I uh, that I think is gaining a little bit more attention or at least it's it's, it's been talked about uh, mm-hmm. a lot now, as we as we are trying to do a better job or trying to learn more about the migration dynamics of mallards and other species as well. But but certainly mallards, being uh, our one of our largest duck species, our, our largest dabbling duck species, it is able to pack on a lot of fat. It is, it has a highly flexible diet. Uh, but it can basically eat anything from invertebrates to uh, to corn or rice or wheat or peas, and uh, that gives it uh, a ton of options. Fish, yeah, I pe- pecans, said. peanuts, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, acorns, really. anything. It, uh, it there's very few things that mallards will not uh, will not eat and cannot derive some energetic or caloric value from. But during that that staging period, they are trying to pack on calories. They're consuming, um, you know, carbs. That's what they're after. And so, that's going to come in the form of peas, wheat, barley. Those are the ones, I'm missing some, well, corn uh, on the landscape as well. Rice, you know, farther south in some Mm -hmm. of those landscapes, but I'm thinking about up north. I'm thinking about, mainly I'm thinking about Prairie Canada, and there is some corn that's making its way into Prairie Canada. But traditionally, when you think about large flocks of of mallards that are out across that landscape uh, foraging feverishly to try to pack on uh, that fat. We're talking about peas, uh, garbanzo beans, yeah. you know, wheat, barley. Those are going to be some of the big ones.
1: Yeah. So, you know, that migration, the big jump, then they're coming down to the wintering areas. How does their food change? Will the thing, the food resources change? And and what, what are these ducks doing once they're on the wintering grounds? I,
2: I think it's probably fair to say that we don't see noticeable changes in the in like the the type of nutrients that ducks that mallards are seeking until the following spring, mm-hmm. during fall, winter, and prior to spring migration, it's really carbs, yeah. um, seeds, acorns, agricultural grains that they are after. Now they have to supplement that obviously with invertebrates and other. Uh, other forms of, of plant material uh, to obtain their essential nutrient, minerals and nutrients, just like we all have to have a balanced diet. Uh, Mallards can't live on, quote, bread alone either. Uh, and by the way, we should not feed Bread to mallards, even in those urban settings, they'll be fine. They'll be fine, people. They'll survive. <laughs> That's right. We don't need to feed them bread. So, uh, yeah, we don't see changes to their diet until uh, until spring, and that again relates to them kind of gearing up um, to uh, gearing up for that uh, breeding season egg formation actually now that i say that and i kind of listen to myself talk here one of the things that i'm leaving out in terms of what they go through during winter is is molt Uh, they do go through a molt during winter uh females will and the males do to some extent and so then they uh so as they're going through that body molt, not a wing molt but a body molt they will uh have to acquire protein to replace those feathers so do they do seek out um protein in the form of invertebrates at that time of year as well. So, I want to make sure I didn't kind of goof up there and forget about the molt that occurs uh, during the winter as well.
1: Yeah. And, and just to clarify that, you know, the body molt is actually the body feathers yes. and they transition new feathers at that time and, but they they can still fly. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And yep. I just wanted you to clarify that for our audience that, yep. you know, when you think of molt, first thing that especially me pops into my head is they go flightless.
2: Yeah, right. No, this is a, that they drop their flight feathers only once per year. They go through, oh, I'm kind of off guard here. I'd have to stop and think about this to get it correct. So, I'm just going to say they go through a couple of body molts, a couple of molts of their contour feathers, their body feathers each year. And the males and females differ a little bit in the timing of those, um, of those molts. And so, that's an episode. That's a conversation that we need to think a little bit more about, and have someone on that can speak to that. Those different stages of molt and how they vary among species. Among species, and you know, there are some that we there. There's some thought that even that maybe ruddy ducks might go through a second wing molt hmm. uh, on their. On their wintering grounds. So anyway, there's some interesting yeah. things to talk about with regard to getting in uh, into the details of molt when it happens, the different types of molt, and and so forth. But yeah, the that's why whenever you go out into a wetland during the during the winter and you see all these feathers on the water, yeah, well they're going through that body molt during uh, uh during the winter. The females will be,
1: and then you know at that time, you know as we get into fall and winter, um, that's when waterfowl hunters are out there chasing these birds and and being the most abundant duck. uh, Really, these things are making up a majority of a lot of people's bags. And I just want to say there are some areas in the country that don't harvest near as many mallards as others. But what makes some of those states different from each other? As in, you know, West Virginia is not going to harvest near as many mallards as Arkansas, obviously. But what is it about that habitat use during the winning area that really attracts... Um, mallards to these high abundant states. So you you love to ask those what is it
2: why <laughs> questions, which puts me on the uh, on the side of having to provide a, a good explanation. So let me just say there's probably a number of reasons behind this. Let me let me start by saying that when we look across the four flyways, uh, mallards are most abundant in the Mississippi flyway, and if you roll back the hands of time, that's going to be related to and and quite frankly, a lot of the patterns that we see now are going to be a reflection of the uh sort of longer term historical patterns of migration and and um, uh, and habitats and how they've occurred across the landscape so when we kind of back up a hundred years or so and look at where the habitats wintering habitats occurred that we would have expected mallards to use uh the lower Mississippi Valley the lower portion of the Mississippi River Valley is, uh, that was it. You know, those flooded bottomland hardwoods, when the White River, the Cache River, the Mississippi River got out of its banks, flooded those bottomland hardwood forests and made accessible all those acorns and other grasses and whatever, uh, uh, all sorts of other food resources that mallards would just gobble up. That became the heart of, and, and has remained so, quite frankly, the, uh, the heart of the winter distribution of mallards. Now, you can look to the Gulf Coast of Louisiana, Texas, Texas Panhandle, the Playa Lakes region, lots of wetlands there. Pretty much anywhere you find wetlands, you're gonna find mallards and you're gonna find mallard abundance is gonna be at a regional scale. Kind of correlated with at least the historical abundance yeah. of those of that of those wetlands. Out in California, a good chunk of the mallards that they harvest in Central Valley, California, are going to be locally produced. Uh, you've got mallards that will will that are locally produced in the Great Lakes that make up a good portion of their mallard harvest. Uh, same is going to be the case on the in the Atlantic Flyway, the northeastern U.S., where you get you get some mallard production. Those birds disproportionately contribute, you know, like on a percentage basis, if you look at the birds produced in the northeastern U.S., um, the majority of those are going to be mm-hmm. kind of harvested in in some of those local states. Now, they do continue to migrate on farther southward, but they're disproportionately important to those areas where they are produced. Um, so, the distribution of mallards is going to be a reflection generally of the distribution of the habitats and the food resources that they are after. And uh, that really leads us to the Mississippi alluvial valley as the the stronghold. Um, So.
1: And you have some harvest numbers too. I I do.
2: I do. We can look at harvest and it's going to reflect that same distribution and abundance. And so not surprisingly, about half of the mallard harvest on average occurs in the Mississippi flyway. Uh, and it's, prob- it's been that way for many years and continues to be that way. When you look across the entire, uh, entire U.S., I don't think these numbers here account for a harvest that occurs in Canada. Look across the entire U.S. on average over the past 20 or so years, we've had an average harvest of about four and a half million mallards. I think we've had a few years recently here where the numbers been lower than that. But, uh, but on average, we're looking at four to four and a half million mallards harvested and half of those are going to come from the mississippi flyway. Uh, about 20% of those of that is going to come from the central flyway, a 20 another 20% is going to come from the uh, pacific flyway including alaska and then you get about 10% or so from the atlantic flyway. And if you look at the importance of mallard in the overall harvest of ducks, on average they're going to account for about a third of mm. total duck harvest. That's a lot. So, it is. It One species accounts for about a third of the total duck harvest. Now, part of that is because we have, I mean, it's a, it's a robust population size. If you look continentally, you're probably looking at a population size, breeding population size, somewhere around 10, 11, 12 million on average. Um, and that may be even higher in, in some years. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's an incredibly abundant duck. It has, we have, um, you know, Respectably high bag limits at least during liberal seasons here over the past 20 or so years for that species and it is a I mean it's just a great duck to hunt it, mm-hmm. the, the the way it decoys yep. the way it responds to calls um, the way it responds to decoys at least if you know they don't always respond to my calling <laughs> or to my decoys so I need to work on that yeah. so not all mallards are the same or maybe it's not all hunters are the same yeah. I'm not sure which is the case I,
1: I think there's something special to be uh <laughs> to be said about you know it is it's ironic that that it is the most abundant species and it is also you know the, the most harvested species um yet it still holds such a you know i guess a, a high stature that's right it does to it. Hunters, so the appreciation
2: isn't worn out isn't eroded by its right. by its abundance or mm-hmm. by its popularity or the no, not popularity but yeah it's it's just it's commonness
1: yeah and there's something special about that green head on blue sky days you get that white underbelly the sun shining it's it's something special about the mallard um yeah before we get out of here let's do quick rundown on just conservation concerns obviously with the abundance and with the prolific lifestyle that these things live um kind of pinpoint some, some real conservation focus that, that Ducks Unlimited Science is taking a look at right now.
2: What I need to do here first is talk about three different breeding stocks of mallards because mm-hmm. that's how we think about some of our conservation concerns. In North America, mallards can be subdivided into three breeding stocks. One is a Western stock of mallards that will include mallards in Alaska, interior, interior British Columbia, Washington Oregon and California there's the midcontinent breeding stock of mallards that will include mallards in the prairie provinces of Canada the northern uh, the, the prairies of the. US the Western boreal forest the Great Lake states um, and then in the then there's the eastern stock of mallards eastern population of mallards which is going to include everything pretty much east of uh, east of the Great Lakes. Uh, Major production areas will include the northeastern states down to about Virginia. You're going to find a few birds south of there, but Virginia is about as far south as you can find appreciable numbers, at least in those wild settings. And then eastern Canada as well. So, those three stocks of mallards are how we in the waterfowl management community manage mallard populations. Western mallards, uh, have been doing pretty good. I don't have population numbers broken down by by those different stocks. Um, what I can do, I think I can remember these ballpark-wise in terms of like the mallard average mallard breeding population size across those three stocks. If we, for the mallards in the Atlantic flyway, Eastern mallards, I think we're somewhere around one to one and a half million On average, if we look into uh, the mid-continent population, that's, of course, the largest population of of mallards there. Anywhere from, uh, you know, 9 to 6 or 7 million, depending on habitat conditions or whatever. But typically, you're looking at around 9 million, at least here in recent years. So, for that western mallard stock, I think we're looking at somewhere around a million mallards, uh, somewhere in that neighborhood. Most of them are in that mid-continent. I may be a little bit off on some of those numbers, but relatively speaking, it's going to be in the ballpark. The mid-continent mallard population is the, is the big one. And so in terms of conservation concerns, Western mallards are doing, uh, are, are doing pretty well. Well, they're doing doing fine. There's no indication of any issues with, with their populations right now. And then in the mid-continent population, no issues there. Like there's no, no pressing like population decline that we can't necessarily understand. Now, if you want to look yeah. more regionally within that mid-continent population, you can go to the Great Lakes states. Mm-hmm. And there are some issues there, some concerns with declining mallard populations in you know among that sort of subset, that yeah. breeding subset. And we're actually involved in some research now. Uh, Michigan State University is a partner in this research using some satellite transmitters to try to get a handle on what's going on with uh, with Great Lakes mallards as a subset of that mid-continent population and then you get into the eastern mallard and that's that's its entire kind of issue of its own. We've seen also population declines over the past 10 or so years um, for Eastern mallards. And we began to touch on that a little bit with Phil Lavretsky a couple of years ago mm-hmm. when he was looking at the genetics of what's actually happening there yeah. with the with Eastern mallards. So, declining population size among Eastern mallards, as well as some really intriguing genetic stuff of game farm mallards maybe, Um you know kind of having a becoming more prevalent in Mm -hmm. that eastern mallard population and some there's also uh, some questions about differences in productivity between mallards nesting in the U.S. versus mallards nesting in Canada it's like we're seeing these population declines what's driving it driving it is harvest is it reproduction and if it's um, and then, is there different? Are there differences in reproduction between birds produced in the or birds breeding in the U.S. and birds breeding in Canada? So, you know, the, when we look at mallards, the Great Lakes, as well as the eastern mallard population, are the ones for which we're. We do have some concerns, uh, some legitimate questions, and we're trying to get at those through some targeted science. Now, in terms of overall conservation, like I said at the outset, mallards have been the basis for much of what we know about habitat relationships with uh, between ducks and wetlands and upland nesting areas. Now, through the years, we've studied individual species and learned a whole host of about, uh, or learned a lot about those other species, but mallards continue to be a really good proxy for kind of what's going on um, with with those areas, or at least for the, the habitat requirements and the type of work that we need to be doing to maximize re- recruitment uh, and then breeding season survival, uh, and so, you know, that, they have helped shape in a major way a lot of the conservation efforts that we pursue up there in the prairies.
1: No, oh, that's awesome. And it's, this has been fantastic. I mean, we've, you know, like I said at the outset of the show, I was concerned we'd be able to get, you know, this long, but we could probably go even longer.
2: Well, I'll probably go back through here and we'll listen to it. And I'll, you know, say, oh, well, shoot, we didn't, we didn't talk about that.
1: We didn't talk about that. That's or, right. Or we
2: could have said this, or maybe you might even say, oh, Mike, you screwed that
1: up. But- well, if that's the case, we'll do <laughs> Mallard's part two pretty soon. Uh, Mike, this has been great. It's been awesome. Awesome. I hope our listeners learned something today about the mallard, Um, but thanks for joining me. You bet, Chris. My my pleasure. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier, for coming on the show and and talking about mallards with us today. I'd like to thank Clay Baird, our producer, for putting the show together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the DU Podcast and supporting wetlands conservation.